There can be no question of coercing any large areas in which one community has a majority to live against their will under a government in which another community has a majority. And the only alternative to coercion is partition. I most honestly appeal to every community, and particularly to Muslim India, to maintain peace and order. It is with no joy in my heart that I commend these proposals to you, though I have no doubt in my mind that this is the right course. For generations, we have dreamt and struggled for a free and independent united India. Namaskar. I've been looking for a way to start this episode. Honestly, it's hard to know where to start from, especially when you have to discuss an event that took place over 75 years ago. Since partition is the main topic of this podcast, I will focus my attention to the events of 1905, when Bengal was first partitioned on religious and linguistic lines. The strength of relationships between the various religious communities of India are first properly tested by the British during this event. With the creation of the Muslim League, a formal divide was created. This was exasperated by many of the Muslim elite who used the League and f- to further their own agendas of expanding political Islam. Events such as the Mopla massacre of Hindus in 1921, the Calcutta and Noakali massacres of non-Muslim populations in 1946 and many other communal riots and massacres between them are testimony to the growing power of political Islam. Leaders like Muhammad Ali Johar, Shaukat Ali Johar, Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah and others emerged due to the British support of these divide and rule policies initiated in 1905. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, however, deserves the lion's share of the credit for dividing the Hindus and Muslims. Oh yes, I'm not joking, but we'll come to that soon. Suffice it to say, his defense of Muslims sometimes from an indefensible position, the application of non-violence applying only to Hindus and no one else caused untold suffering on millions of people. Quoting from Acharya Shreer R.C. Majumdar's History of Freedom Movement in India, Volume 3, A historian must uphold the great ideal of truth which was so dear to Gandhi himself. And if we delineate the political life of Gandhi with strict adherence to truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, it will, I believe, be patent to all that Gandhi was lacking in both political wisdom and political strategy. As we commonly understand these terms, and far from being infallible, committed serious blunders one after another in pursuit of some utopian ideals and methods which had no basis in reality. It will also be seen that the current estimate of the degree or extent of his success bears no relation to facts. Pardon me once again if I offend anyone's sentiments about Mr. Gandhi, but this must be said because in a very real way, his politics of rationalizing crime, his constant overtures of appeasement and his intention for India's future is an issue that is relevant to what modern politics is like in India 
and in fact in the world even today. There is a very clear pattern of behavior Indian politicians have displayed with regards to issues such as the abrogation of Article 370, the citizen, Citizenship Amendment Bill, and even the illegal migrations into Assam that resembles what many leaders behaved like during the British era. Today, there is a growing interest in being politically correct and not speaking your own mind when it comes to various national or social issues that we are confronted with every day. We live with shadows of fear, fears of being rejected by our peers, fears that asking the wrong questions will set you apart and cast you aside from society. Well, I don't intend on being politically correct. I don't intend on misusing the freedom life has given us all to stick with a pack of sheep pretending to be wolves. We all have a rational mind that can ask questions. And questions need to be asked of people we have unduly worshipped for so long. And Mr. Gandhi and Mr. Nehru are among the few who fall into that category. Again, this is not to lambast them and call them criminals, but to bring out stories both good and bad, many of which are not part of our regular historical narrative, about the men and women who supposedly gave us freedom. A lot of people died fighting for the freedom of our country, but a lot of other people were killed due to serious political blunders by our own leaders. We must speak for the dead, and their sacrifice must never go unnoticed. हमारे सामने एक ही प्रोग्राम रहेगा लड़ाई का इंतजाम करना लड़ाई शुरू कर देना और कामयाब करना है पर आपने यहां है क्या हमारे रास्ते में आएगी खूब प्यार तकलीफें बदे कोई बात नहीं है हम जिंदा रहेंगे या तो मरेंगे कोई बात नहीं है बात कोई सही बात यह है अहम बात यह है आखिर में हमारी कामयाबी होगी इन सारा Before we move on to the Bengal partition of 1905, let us start off with some myth-busting about 1857 so-called Sepoy Rebellion. I have with me Professor Kapil Kumar who gives us a very brief introduction into the events that transpired after the war of 1857. In British textbooks and even according to the Indian education narratives, the war of 1857 is called a Sepoy Rebellion. Basically what the version says is that the creation of the country we call India today was a british gift according to their propaganda by the time the east india company entered the shores of india they found a country in constant rebellion among many warring principalities the people were kept poor by means of a discriminatory caste system imposed upon them by the brahmin or upper class 
Their religion consisted of idolatry, worshipping of multiple gods and goddesses, superstition and myth, unequal treatment of women, all resembling pagan worship or at least what they considered paganism, which Christianity fought tooth and nail against. This slowly led to the capturing of various states and kingdoms, starting with the Battle of Polashi, or Plassey as it's commonly known today, which marked the beginning of India's subjugation. The British Indian Army was formed to protect the company's trade practices, which apparently provided employment to millions of people. They slowly began recruiting officers from the Indian communities, including Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Parsis, Jains and others, to apparently protect the people from invading armies such as the French, Dutch, Afghans, even Marathas or Sikhs, if they'd uh, harmed the British trade interests. However, slowly there was a growing discontentment towards the British as the new masters now introduced a new gun called the Enfield 1853 musket whose bullet cartridges were greased with cow or pig's blood which hurts the sentiments of both Hindus and Muslims. The rebellious soldiers then attacked a British garrison, igniting a nationwide rebellion. Reports of barbaric treatment towards British officers and citizens by the rebels reached British shores as the East India Company took strict action to put down the revolt. This is the story basically. Now, uh, Will Durant, a world-renowned historian, stepped, stepped in India around 1930. His assessment of British rule was, the British conquest of India was the invasion and destruction of a high civilization by a trading company utterly without scruple or principle, careless of art and greedy of gain, overrunning with fire and sword a, a country temporarily disordered and helpless, bribing and murdering, annexing and stealing, and the beginning that career if illegal and legal plunder which has now gone on ruthlessly for 173 years. This he wrote in 1930. To simply suggest that a revolt happened purely because of some grease cartridges, I mean it's laughable, but somehow this hogwash passes for history in Britain even today. Winston Churchill, born 17 years after the so-called revolt, grew up with the idea that Indian soldiers could not be trusted, that the Indian people were barbaric, their women lustful miscreants, while their customs and traditions were marred by black magic and superstition. The racist rants that Churchill spewed about Indians, especially during World War II, while justifying the need for an empire in India after the end of World War, is a result of such pro false propaganda perpetrated in England especially after 1857. And it's not just Churchill. Other ma major conservative leaders, several sections of the monarchy and the people of England in general espouse such racist feelings towards Indians, especially the Hindus. And we'll get to that part later. The fact is, India has always been a land of plenty. Francois Bernier, a physician who visited India around, uh, around 1665, called Bengal the finest and most fruitful land in the world. J.T. Sutherland, an American Unitarian minister, said this about Indian production. Nearly every kind of manufacture or product known to the civilized world, nearly every kind of creation of man's brain and hand, existing anywhere and prized either for its utility or beauty, had long been produced in India. India has a far greater industrial and manufacturing nation 
than any in Europe or any other in Asia. Her textile goods, the fine products of her looms in cotton, wool, linen and silk, were famous over the civilized world. So were her jewelry and precious stones cut in every lovely form. So were her pottery, porcelains, ceramics of every kind, color, quality and beautiful shape. So were her fine works in metal, steel, iron and gold. She had great architecture, equal in beauty to any in the world. She had great engineering skills. She had great merchants, great businessmen, great bankers and financiers. Not only was she the greatest shipbuilding nation, but she had great commerce and trade by land and sea, which extended to all known civilized countries. Such was the India the British found when they came. It's not that poverty didn't exist earlier. The establishment of Mughal rule saw to it that 70% of India's wealth remained under the control of about 600 plus families, while the rest of the populace were left to their own devices. However, from 1757 on, after the Battle of Plassey, the British system systematically introduced hugely exploitative economic and agrarian policies, causing a series of famines all over India, the most well-documented one being the 1943 famine caused during World War II in Bengal. This suddenly caused a great deal of poverty, especially amongst the artisan and farmer class who bore the brunt of these policies. Indians, in fact, have been kept largely away from the truth pertaining to 1857. Vinayak Damodar Savarkar or V. Savarkar was essentially the first Indian to write a detailed history from the Indian perspective on the reasons behind the War of Independence. With detailed evidence, his book goes to show that an elaborate plan was being formulated in various kingdoms of India to overthrow the British. From Delhi to Peshawar, Bengal to Maharashtra, there was a clear coordinated plan to overthrow the East India Company who were amassing great wealth while growing in numbers and strength. It isn't too difficult to understand why this revolt took place. The narrative that it was just some soldiers revolting against some uh, some cartridges does not hold water. There's a clear chain of evidence showing that from 1770 onwards with the Sanyasi revolt in Bengal, there was a steady stream of revolts against the British in small or large forms taking place wherever they went. V. Savarkar goes on to show how these streams of revolt eventually led to a first war, first war of independence in 1857. His book was so sensational that the British banned its publication in 1909 and eventually sent Savarkar to jail for sedition, along with many other charges, of course. The book inspired many a freedom fighter of that era, including Lala Lajpat Rai, Aurobindo Ghosh, Sachindranath Sanyal, Bhagat Singh, Ram Prasad Bismil, Subhash Bose, and many, many others. Heroes such as Rani Lakshmi Bai, Begum Hazrat Mahal, Umrao Singh, Bakht Khan, Tatya Tope, Nana Sahib and many others were popularized as freedom fighters. After the 1857 debacle, the British government officially took charge of India and suppressed the uprising brutally. Quick to learn from their mistakes though, a policy of divide and rule was brought into immediate effect, beginning with the army. Under Alan Octavian Hume, the Indian National Congress was formed 
in 1887 to serve as a buffer between the government and the people of India. Here is Professor Kapil Kumar for more on the issue. You see, the very first thing is that 1857 is a very turning point in Indian history. And now research has proved that it was not just a Sipai mutiny, it was not just a kind of, you know, a local revolt by feudal leaders and all, uh, but uh, it was planned for a long time, five years and all, and it was spread right from Shavar in the northwest regions, right up to Karnataka in Gujarat, in northeast and all that. Now, once 1857 had been suppressed by the British, they could, you know, could not douse, they doused the flames. But these flames had taken a shape that they were emerging at different intervals of time in different forms against the British. Somewhere uh, the peasant revolts were coming, somewhere, uh, you know, other kind of uh, protests are there. And by 1885, I firmly believe when Hume says, that a safety valve was needed, you know, a kind of His Majesty's uh, opposition was needed to, uh, to tell the British to rule over India. And he, he always very clearly mentioned uh, that he was, uh, he had worked in the intelligence department and he had seen reports uh, that there were protests and all going to happen in 1857, like situation might develop. And to avoid that, he needed a safety valve. And that's how a Congress got created. And you see one very important thing in Congress, that what were the initial demands of the Congress? The Congress demands were not for freedom. The Congress demand was not for anything major, you know. What they demanded was share in power, you know. That Indians should be given representation in the councils, in the legislative assembly, um, Indians should get representation in jobs, all these kind of demands which were, they were putting up. And then started a transition within the Congress, you know. Uh, with, uh, say, you can say that uh, uh, what they call the, you know, hot wing within the Congress, you know, when this uh, Tilak and uh, Balpal Lal thing came up, you know, when Tilak said Swaraj is my birthright, and they wanted to develop that. So this kind of evolution is right, taking place in the Congress all the time, you know, it comes uh, with Swadeshi movement in Bengal, when Bengal is partitioned to crash nationalism. But please remember one thing, that along with the development of Congress, there was there were also other streams of nationalism which emerged during this period. Don't forget that in 1870s, the revolutionaries emerged in, you know, Maharashtra. We have the Fatke brothers, you know. In many other parts of the country, the British are being challenged by different modes, you know. And the full revolutionary movement later develops in Bengal also. We have the Anushilan and we have the Jugantar and all. So it is not, Congress is just one stream of nationalism which is coming up against the British and there are other streams of nationalism uh, which are emerging during this period. And within this you see, uh, then we see the emerging, and, and there are a lot of peasant movements, you know, which are, taken, which are taking place all over the country against the British. And during this period comes Gandhi and one credit I give to Gandhi is that he converts the Congress into a mass movement. Uh, you know, by talking of the people when Champaran and all takes place and someone says, here, someone is off for the peasants. But we must remember here one thing which is very crucial. 
that though Gandhi changed the character of the Congress, uh, you know, from a kind of an elite organization to a mass organization, but the leadership which emerged from the masses, mm -hmm. that leadership could not find a place in Congress organizational hierarchy. It was still very elitist. Yeah, no, but it very elite. It remained with the lawyers. It remained with the you know top caste and all. No one found a place like Rajkumar Shukru, you know, who had taken Gandhi to Champaran. Uh, no one find that Baba Ramchandra in Awadh, you know, got any uh, hierarchical position in the Congress or what happened to Indulal Yajnik in Gujarat and all. You have many such instances all over the place. Mm -hmm. Then Gandhi comes with a thing with Swaraj in the ear. And let's not forget that during the First World War, they outrightly supported the British. But he wasn't for well, Swaraj, he was, he was for uh, Dominion rule, wasn't he? That's what I'm telling you. That the Swaraj was not even clearly defined. What does it mean? Does it mean self-rule? Does it mean dominion status? Does it mean independence? It was remained an undefined Swaraj in um, uh, when it was the slogan was given in 1920. It came out after what had happened with Jallianwala Baga, Jallianwala Bag. What kind of you know uh, India thought will be divided by helping in the First World War? Some of these people had big hopes that the British are very benevolent and all. And what India got was, you know, the Sedition Committee report, uh, the Hunter, uh, you know, later on the uh, uh, Act Act, and the Black Laws and all that. And then we get Jallianwala and this massacre and all these kind of things. So there emerges this non-profit movement. Again, from this demand, from Swaraj in a year, it is in the 19, late 20s, you see, that when the talk of dominion status and all at that time trying to clarify the Swaraj, where it is Subhash Chandra Bose, you see, who in the Calcutta session first time demands that it should be, um, you know, complete independence. There are not, resolutions, you Not Pandit complete, Nehru? No, you see, it is Nehru and Subhash and Nehru who moved that resolution in Calcutta Congress. It should be complete independence, you know. Right. And Gandhi, Gandhi is not in favor of that, you know. And again, it takes an year at Lahore when complete independence is declared. And the interesting part is that after declaring complete independence at Lahore, Gandhi goes back, you know, in 1931 during the um, roundtable conferences, you see, even that. Now, again, they participate uh, uh, once again, you know, after the that Swaraj experiment earlier, Swaraj party experience, again, 1937-39, uh, they go for electoral politics in the ministries and all which are formed. It's a massive support to the Congress at that time. It comes over. In fact, Muslim League is virtually wiped out in these elections. But again, when in 39 and all, you see the Second World War starts. And there, Bose is demanding, you know, that this is the time for India. This is the opportunity for India. That the Congress leadership is dilly dilly. You know, they're not very clear what to do. Some want to support the uh, British, uh, some want to, uh, you know, uh, remain neutral, some want to uh, sort of uh, use the opportunity to fight the British. And that's how the Congress politics heats up during this period. If you. The first issue of the Partition of India can be dated back to 1905 when Lord Nathaniel Curzon decided to partition Bengal into two parts. 
the first half included East Bengal and Assam, which is predominantly Muslim-dominated province. The second half would include West Bengal, Bihar and Orissa, with a Hindu majority. The goal was twofold. One, to reduce the Bengal Hindu population in both provinces, especially since Curzon had a deep hatred towards Bengali Hindus for their advanced political ideas. The second was to create a Hindu-Muslim divide which Curzon saw as the best alternative to check any dangers to the British Empire in India. The plan was sinister and soon the news spread began to spread in Calcutta and the rest of Bengal. On October 16, 1905, despite strict opposition, the act was enforced and Bengal was partitioned. The reaction was incendiary. Both Hindus and Muslims in unison gathered on the streets and protested. Rubindranath Thakur, the legendary poet, called it a national day of mourning. Gaji Nojudur Islam, one of, Beng- one of Bengal's greatest poets of the 20th century, wrote many an inspiring song which became patriotic anthems on their own. Songs like Amar Shonar Bangla by Rubindranath and Vande Matra by Bankim Chandra Chattopadhyay became the rallying cry for a united mass against a divisive Raj. Many prominent newspaper editors, local leaders and members of the Bengal Legislative Council wrote or spoke against what they saw as being the destruction of a unified culture. As a result, British goods were boycotted. A number of leading newspapers had their front pages blackened as a sign of mourning. Protests were conducted throughout cities like Tangail, Dhaka, Foridpur, Joshore, Moimon Singh, among many others. Outside Bengal, in Maharashtra, Bal Gangadhar Tilak, a fervent nationalist, started speaking against the partition by organizing major festivals to spread the word to the masses. Defending Tilak in the courts later was a young lawyer called Muhammad Ali Jinnah. During his early years in the Bombay court, he developed an interest in national politics and soon rose to be a towering figure in India's demand for home rule. In Punjab, Sardar Ajit Singh, uncle to revolutionary Bhagat Singh. In Tamil Nadu, Sri Chidambaram Pillai. In the Congress, Dadabai Naroji and Kopal Krishna Gokhale, all stalwart nationalist leaders of India, spoke ferociously against the partition. The Viceroy remained unmoved. However, the protests continued with common Indians now joining in. Cobblers refu- refused to repair shoes of their European masters. Pandits refused to officiate at weddings where foreign clothes were being used. Children in small towns and villages refused to enter their schools wearing foreign shoes or clothes. The most amazing story I, I read was of a six-year-old who was ill and refused to take foreign medicine as a sign of her protest. The British, who saw these nationwide protests as a severe threat to their rule, began to imprison many of these leaders. They were jailed in the infamous prisons of Mandalay and the Andaman Islands, where many were tortured on a regular basis for years on end. Herein lies the thousands of micro-stories of many, many brave men whose main crime was to fight against the unjust British. Many of these men and their sacrifices went unnoticed and forgotten by successive Indian governments post-independence. Curzon, who was an extremely smart man, in order to weaken the extreme opposition, decided to float a loan with a small interest rate to Khwaja Salimuddin Bahadur, Nawab of Dhaka. The Nawab of Dhaka was an influential man and soon began to collect a sizable number of Muslims who were now supporting partition and in 1906 during a meeting in Dhaka, the All India Muslim League was officially formed. 
Soon the All India groundswell of support started to phase as a majority of Muslims under the Nawab sided with the British accepting partition. In years to come, the Muslim League would turn out to be one of the strongest allies to British rule as a countermeasure to what they saw as a possible dictatorial Hindu rule. The British reciprocated this support in their own way. No Muslim League member who wasn't also a member of the Congress was ever sent to jail. These events sowed the seeds to partition as the divide between Hindus and Muslims now widened ever, ever further. The next body blow came in 1909 in the form of the legislative enactments. Muslims would now be given a separate electorate where seats would be reserved only for Muslims. This ensured that Muslim interests would be taken care of by Muslims alone. Essentially what it meant was that if there was a decision regarding India's future or freedom, it wouldn't be dis discussed with Indians as a whole unit but rather with Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs and others which meant Britain could easily delay any talks for concessions by bringing in religious differences. And therein lies the problem. In the meantime, the Indian National Congress, which was supporting the movement, although not leading it, were in a quandary of their own. The moderate faction of the Congress, which wanted to discuss the debate with the British for more power within the British administration, were at loggerheads with the extremist faction of Congress, which squarely demanded home rule. The differences were such that by 1907, the Congress had split into two groups. The British, taking advantage of this split, clamped down on both groups, effectively ending any, possible, any possibility of mass rallies on one end, or even granting any concession to the moderates on the other. On August 4, 1914, Britain went to war against Germany and dragged the Indian people and its resources into a European conflict. Over 100 million pounds were given by India and approximately 74,000 out of a million recruited soldiers died fighting Britain's battles. Rural India saw a series of price hikes for grain all over as rice and other important produce was being shipped to the war front. Many of India's nationalist leaders supported these moves in hopes of getting concessions within the government after the war, a mistake they would pay for daily. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, back from South Africa, in his natural alliance with the British, began recruiting Indian combatants to, the, to support the British war effort. His creed of non-violence seemed only to apply to Indians and not the British, and later on, as we shall see, to Hindus and not Muslims during conflict. I let Sanjeev Sanyal, principal economic advisor to the Indian government, explain those tumultuous years between World War I and Britain's response to India after the war and Chagyanwala Bagh. The first round of armed resistance to the British uh, by the uh, revolutionaries um, ended with, of course, the arrest of Baran Ghosh, uh, the exile of uh, Sri Aurobindo, uh, and, uh, and finally with the arrest uh, of Savarkar. However, this movement by this time, these ideas had spread very widely. And particularly the idea that uh, Savarkar had put out of trying to infiltrate the British Indian Army. So this movement, which had strong roots by this time in Bengal, in, in Punjab and in Maharashtra, 
was uh, brought under one uh, umbrella by a uh, very dynamic uh, and charismatic individual called Raj Bihari Bose. And he and his um, trusted Lieutenant Sachindranath Sanya uh, now decided uh, that <coughs> they were going to try and take this movement forward. Their first attempt was, of course, to try and um, kill Lord Hardinge in Chandni Chowk in uh, Delhi, where they nearly succeeded. But really, it was with the coming of the First World War that they began to um, gather pace. Remember, this was happening at a time that uh, a group of uh, Sikhs uh, based in North America uh, were being organized uh, in what is called the Gadar uh, movement. Uh, by again a very charismatic uh, individual called Lala Hardyal, and many Sikhs who had made their money or uh, uh, were now began to actually come back to Punjab and began to organize various groups. Now, as this movement began to gather pace, the First World War uh, started, and the British began to recruit very heavily from India, particularly Punjab, but other places as well, and the revolutionaries. Uh, began to infiltrate them with their ideology. And the idea was that in February 2050, there would be a grand insurrection by the Gadarites uh, against the British. And that uh, not just in India, but even in other places where uh, Indian regiments were placed, there would be a grand uh, revolt. And that was how uh, British rule would be ended. Sadly, just a couple of days before the revolt was to take uh, place, uh, British intelligence was told by a mole that uh, this was about to happen and overnight they changed all the guards and the armories and took precautions and as a result at the very last minute the revolt basically collapsed uh, with the one exception of Singapore where the message had not reached so the Indian uh, regiment in Singapore actually did go into revolt and for about a week the uh, 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 regiment in Singapore held uh, the, the island until it was uh, put down uh, very brutally. As a result of this uh, failure, uh, Raj Bihari Bose was forced to escape to Japan. Uh, but the, those who remained back in India uh, continued to act. And Sachindranath Sanyal now began to make contacts with uh, various groups, particularly the Germans who were fighting the British, of course, in the First World War to try and get help and the Germans were very keen on this and they began to provide support at multiple levels uh, including to the Gadarites in North America and this of course meant that the British began to infiltrate uh, this movement in North America as well and <clears throat> began to in fact encourage um, the building and infiltration of anti-India uh, Gurudwaras uh, to essentially capture this movement. And interestingly, this is the root of the Khalistani movement in Canada that you still have. It actually got to do with 100 years earlier, the British attempt to infiltrate the Indian nationalist movements uh, and uh, lead them uh, in a particular uh, direction. So this movement continued. Meanwhile, Sachinath Sanyal was also captured and also sent off to Kalapani. But the Germans, meanwhile, had begun, had, had contacted uh, another gentleman uh, called Bagha Jyoti in Bengal. And they promised him to bring large amounts of uh, arms and armaments uh, by ship 
uh, and land them on the Odisha coast. They also prom promised them a raid on the Andaman and Nicobar Islands to free up all the revolutionaries who were based there. And all of this was to happen on Christmas Day 1915. Again, however, uh, <clears throat> due to the fact that uh, a few of the key uh, German uh, agents switched sides, uh, this uh, attempt completely failed. Uh, Bhaga Jyotin, who was waiting on uh, near uh, Baleshwar for these armaments to arrive from the Germans, um, was uh, tracked down and captured, and, uh, and, and not captured, but he was killed. Uh, and uh, so on. So this particular attempt also failed. Other attempts by uh, the revolutionaries also didn't come to very much, including an expedition led by Barkatullah Khan and Raja Mahindra Singh to try and encourage the Afghans to uh, uh, revolt and invade um, Britain uh, during the First World War. Now, although this whole episode had failed, uh, in carrying out a, a, a 1857 type uh, insurrection. These ideas of the Gadarites, however, remained alive. And when the Indian soldiers began to return after the First World War in 1919, uh, the British were very, very uh, concerned that there, this would uh, lead to a big revolt because you now had all these well-trained, armed and organized groups returning and uh, increasingly radicalized by these ideas. This is the context in which they introduced the Rowlatt Acts and the draconian Rowlatt Acts ultimately led to the succession of events that led to the Jallianwala Bagh massacre. So in some ways, uh, the, the sequence of events that had been set in place by the revolutionaries culminated with the Jallianwala Bagh massacre and uh, all uh, that happened afterwards. There were some hard truths to reconcile here. First, the order to shoot at the crowd was given by G uh, General Reginald Dyer, but the shots were fired by the Indian soldiers under his command. These soldiers were later given pensions after, after independence and the crime of shooting at their fellow citizens went without discussion. The man who sanctioned General Dyer's actions was Sir Michael O'Dwyer, who commended the brave action taken by the general. While the country demanded strict action against the two men, the Viceroy gave O'Dwyer a resounding certificate of character. Back in England, Jallianwala Bagh was met with gratifying approval by the public. General Dyer was praised for taking strict action against those lawbreakers. Members of the House of Lords in Britain praised Dyer for his strict action, whereas in the House of Commons, he was denounced by Winston Churchill and H.H. H. Asquith, the former Prime Minister. Rudyard Kipling defended the general by saying he was only following orders. In 1940, Sir Michael O'Dwyer was shot and killed by Sri Uddham Singh in revenge for the Janiawala Bagh massacre. After he shot O'Dwyer, Uddham Singh just stood his ground and waited for the police to arrest him. He said, I did it because I had a grudge against him. He deserved it. He was the real culprit. He wanted to crush the spirit of my people, so I have crushed him. For full 21 years, I have been trying to wreak vengeance. I'm happy 
that have done the job. I'm not scared of death. I'm dying for my country. I've seen my people starving in India under the British rule. I've protested against this. It was my duty. What greater honour could be bestowed on me than death for the sake of my motherland? He was arrested and executed in London and remains a well-known figure to this day, especially in Punjab. In two years' time, the horrors of Jallianwala Bagh were to be re- replicated in a much ghastly manner, but this time in a place called Malabar. By 1919, Mr. Gandhi became the spearhead of the Congress Party and decided to go on the offensive with the non-cooperation movement. Gandhi's fame and rise in India was mainly due to the exploits in South Africa, where he, where he was able to fight the racist apartheid laws imposed on the Indian community. His first success in India came in the Champaran Satyagraha, where he advocated for better pay and compensation to farmers who were forced to grow indigo crops on their land and sell for cheap. He organized large protests and strikes against the local landlords and the government, for which he was even jailed amidst mass protests. He was soon given the title of Bapu and then Mahatma by his ever-growing followers. Many then considered him a saint and to the farmers, he was indeed a saint. However, as soon as he entered national politics, the saintly facade began to fade and the poisonous fangs emerged. The Ottoman Empire, which was dismembered in 1918 after the end of World War I, saw the removal of the Caliph of Turkey or Emperor who was seen as the political authority on Sunni Muslims worldwide. To restore the empire and the caliph back to his position, a group of Indian Muslims led by Muhammad Ali Johar, or or rather he was known as Maulana Muhammad Ali Johar and Shaukat Ali Johar, organized the Khilafat movement. Their goal was to build a nationwide protest against the British government to ensure that the caliph be restored to its rightful positions. By the way, no other Muslim-majority nation of that time made such a request to the British. The movement in its initial stages wasn't the great success they were hoping for. But then soon a beacon of light appeared to support the Jauhar brothers. Mohandas Gandhi took up the case of the Khilafat and soon the movement picked up steam and became a nationwide movement with terrible consequences at the end. Here's Dr. Anand Ranganathan explaining the Khilafat movement and the atrocious finale these events led to, which is known as the Mopla Massacre. When the Great War ended with the disbanding of the Ottoman Empire, Gandhi persuaded the Congress to support the Khilafat movement. A violent agitation for restoration of the Islamic Caliphate deposed by the victorious British. Before long, he pinched his nose and plunged into the murky waters of religious appeasement and terror rationalization in the wake of the ghastly anti-Hindu violence perpetrated by the Malabar Muslim called the Moplas in 1921. Ambedkar, who saw Gandhi's advocacy of the Khilafat movement as a pernicious political stunt, he said, the movement was started by the Muslims It was taken up by Mr. Gandhi with a tenacity and faith which must have surprised many Muslims themselves. Ambedkar viewed the Mopla rebellion as nothing but jihad. The Muslim agitators, he said, 
preached the doctrine that India under the British government was Darul Harb and that the Muslims must fight against it and if they could not, they must carry out the alternative principle of Hijrat. Ambedkar continued, the aim of the Khilafat movement was to establish the kingdom of Islam by overthrowing the British government. Knives, swords and spears were secretly manufactured. Bands of desperados collected for an attack on British authority. On 20th August, a severe encounter took place between the Moplas and the British forces at Pinmangdi. Roads were blocked, telegraph lines cut and the railway destroyed in a number of places. As soon as the administration had been paralyzed, the Moplas declared that Swaraj had been established. A certain Ali Mudaliyar was, Mudaliyar was proclaimed Raja. Khilafat flags were flown and Ernad and Varulana were declared Khilafat kingdoms. As a rebellion against the British government, it was quite understandable. But what baffled most was the treatment accorded by the Moplas to the Hindus of Malabar. The Hindus were visited by a dire fate at the hands of the Moplas. Massacres, forcible conversions, desecration of temples, foul outrages upon women, such as ripping open pregnant women, pillage, arson and destruction. In short, all the accompaniments of brutal and unrestrained barbarism were perpetrated freely by the Moplas upon the Hindus until such time as troops could be hurried to the task of restoring order through a difficult and extensive tract of the country. This was not a Hindu-Muslim riot. This was a massacre. To Ambedkar's horror, Gandhi laid the blame squarely on the Hindus. Hindus, said the Mahatma, must find out the cause of Mopla fanaticism. Just like Kashmiri Pandits must find out the cause for why they were driven out of Kashmir. Hindus will find that they are not without blame. They have hitherto not cared for the Mopla. They have either treated him as a serf or dreaded him. They have not treated him as a friend and neighbor to be reformed and respected. It is no use now becoming angry with the Moplas or the Muslims in general. If such rationalization wasn't unpleasant enough, Gandhi went further, blaming everyone else for the Mopla barbarity but the Moplas themselves. The government, he said, has thoroughly exploited the Mopla's madness. They have punished the entire Mopla community for the madness of a few individuals and have incited the Hindus by exaggerating the facts. Malabar Hindus, like the Moplas, are an excitable people and the government has incited them against the latter. The outbreak, said Gandhi, would not have taken place if the collector had consulted the religious sentiments of the Moplas. That religious sentiment as analyzed by Ambedkar was Jihad. Indeed, Muslim leaders themselves agreed with Ambedkar that it was Jihad, but Gandhi did not. Maulana Hazrat Mohani, the eulogized freedom fighter and a friend of the Mahatma, and one incidentally who coined the slogan in Kalab Zindabad, justified the massacre of Hindus by saying that this was Islamic Jihad and that according to the rules of Jihad, 
those who help the enemy become enemies themselves. Shockingly, Gandhi was conciliatory towards the Maulana. I do not blame the Maulana. He looks upon the British government as an enemy. He would defend anything done in fighting it. He thinks that there is much untruth in what is being said against the Moplas and he is therefore not prepared to see their error. I believe that this is his narrowness, but it should not hurt the Hindus. The Maulana speaks what is in his mind. He is an honest and courageous man. All know that he has no ill will against the Hindus. In spite of his amazingly crude views about religion, said Gandhi, there is no greater nationalist or a greater lover of Hindu-Muslim unity than the Maulana. So here was Gandhi, a Hindu, schooling a Maulana on Islam. He wasn't done yet. He transmogrified next into a Maulana himself, quibbling on Islamic sanctions, just so he could venture into the minds of the men who Ambedkar had called barbarians and rationalize their barbarity. The Moplas notions of Islam were of a very crude type, claimed the Mahatma. Forcible conversions are horrible things, counseled Gandhi. But Mopla bravery must command admiration. These Malabaris are not fighting for the love of it. They are fighting for what they consider is their religion and in the manner they consider is religious. They are brave. Then came the cruelest of blows, a plea to the Hindus to rationalize the bloodbath by taking recourse in dharma. Even if one side is firm in doing its dharma, said Gandhi, there will be no enmity between the two. He alone may be said to be firm in his dharma, who trusts his safety to God and untroubled by anxiety follows the path of virtue. If Hindus apply this rule to the Mopla affair, they will not, even when they see the error of the Moplas, accuse the Muslims. I see nothing impossible in asking the Hindus to develop courage and strength to die before accepting forced conversion. I was delighted to be told that there were Hindus who did prefer the Mopla hatchet to forced conversion. Even so, is it more necessary for a Hindu to love the Mopla and the Muslim more when the latter is likely to injure him or has already injured him? Why should a single Hindu have run away on account of the Mopla's atrocities? This was sheer lunacy. The Mahatma was beseeching the Hindus to hold their ground even as they were being hunted down and butchered. One could quote more, much more, of this utterly reprehensible apologia from the Mahatma's playbook were it not so tormenting. Of, of little comfort is the fact that the saint continued to hold such views despite condemnation by men like Ambedkar. Decades later, while preaching to those affected by the pre-partition Hindu-Muslim violence, he said, Hindus should not harbor anger in their hearts against Muslims, even if the latter wanted to destroy them. Even if the Muslims want to kill us all, we should face death bravely. If they establish their rule after killing Hindus, we would be ushering in a new world by sacrificing our lives. None should fear death. Birth and death are inevitable for every human being. Why should we then rejoice or grieve? If we die with a smile, we shall enter into a new life. 
we shall be ushering in a new India. Ambedkar was incensed at Gandhi's selectivity, more so of his stand on the Mopla massacre. He said, and I quote, Mr. Gandhi has never called the Muslims to account even when they have been guilty of gross crimes against the Hindus. Mr. Gandhi has never protested against such murders of prominent Hindus like Swami Shraddhanand, Rajpal, Nathuramal, Sharma. Not only have the Muslims not condemned these outrages, but even Mr. Gandhi has never called upon the leading Muslims to condemn them. He has kept silent over them. Such an attitude can be explained only on the ground that Mr. Gandhi was anxious to preserve Hindu-Muslim unity and did not mind the murders of a few Hindus if it could be achieved by sacrificing their lives. Ambedkar next turned to Gandhi's behavior during the Mopla massacre, a program, a pogrom he had condemned in the strongest of terms earlier. This attitude to excuse the Muslims any wrong, lest it should injure the cause of unity, is well illustrated by what Mr. Gandhi had to say in the matter of the Mopla riots. The blood-curdling atrocities committed by Moplas in Malabar against the Hindus were indescribable. All over southern India, a wave of horrified feeling had spread amongst the Hindus of every shade of opinion, which was intensified when certain Khilafat leaders were so misguided as to pass resolutions of congratulations to the Moplas on the brave fight they were conducting for the sake of religion and jihad. Any person would have said that this was too heavy a price for Hindu-Muslim unity. But Mr. Gandhi was so much obsessed by the necessity of establishing Hindu-Muslim unity that he was prepared to make light of the doings of the Moplas and the Khilafatis who were congratulating them. He spoke of the Moplas as the brave, God-fearing Moplas who were fighting for what they consider as religion and in a manner which they consider as religious. Here are some other quotes on this issue by Gandhi and Miss Annie Besant, who visited Malabar after the horrifying events of that time. To the Muslims, Swaraj means, as it must, India's ability to effectively deal with the Khilafat question. It is impossible not to sympathize with this attitude. I would gladly ask for the postponement of the Swaraj activity if we could advance the interest of the Khilafat. Gandhi. As a man of truth, I honestly believe that Hindus should yield up to the Muhammadans whatever the latter desire, and they should rejoice in so doing. We can expect unity only if such mutual large-heartedness is displayed. Gandhi. It would be well if Mr. Gandhi could be taken into Malabar to see with his own eyes the ghastly horrors which have been created by the preachings of himself and his loved brothers Muhammad and Shaukat Ali. Men who consider religious to murder, rape, loot, to kill women and little children, cutting down whole families have to be put under restraint in any civilized society. Annie Besant Mr. Gandhi, can he not feel a little sympathy for thousands of women left only with rags, driven from home, for little children born of the flying mothers on roads in refugee camps? The misery is beyond description. Girl wives, 
pretty and sweet, with eyes half blind with weeping, distraught with terror. Women who have seen their husband hacked to pieces before their eye, in the way Moplas consider as religious. Old women tottering, whose faces become written with anguish and who cry at a gentle touch. Men who have lost all, hopeless, crushed, desperate. Can you conceive of a more ghastly and inhuman crime than the murders of babies and pregnant women? A pregnant woman carrying seven months was cut through the abdomen by a rebel and she was seen lying dead on the way with the dead child projecting out of her womb. Another, a baby of six months was snatched away from the breast of her own mother and cut into pieces. Are these rebels human beings or monsters? A respectable Nair lady at Melatur was stripped naked by the rebels in the presence of her husband and brothers, who was made to stand close by with their hands tied behind. When they shut their eyes in abhorrence, they were compelled at the point of sword to open their eyes and witness the rape committed by the brute in their present. Annie Besant on 6th December 1921 Growing up, I revered Gandhi and I tried to understand what he stood up in terms of peace and non-violence and truth. Reading such comments was earth-shattering in every possible way. Not only did he condone the violence, but he even castigated the victims of the violence themselves. He called for Hindu-Muslim unity by asking Hindus to meekly submit to the Muslims and if necessary die without provoking the latter. I mean, what sort of inferiority complex was this man made of? His stance of not condemning evil because the guilty party are of a certain identity is utterly disgusting. The Indian National Congress did nothing to condemn these acts thanks to Gandhi's political hegemony. The appeasement policies towards the Muslims continued through the national freedom struggle and even post-India's independence. Its effects can be seen all over India and the world today, whether it be CAA, the Anti-Conversion Bill of UP or even the Delhi riots of 2020. Now coming back to what happened in Malabar. Do you think that the Hindus who survived the massacre would have had friendly feelings towards the Muslims? No, they wouldn't. No one ever came and apologized to them. India's top leader Gandhi turned away from them. Their story remains untold. Their wounds have not healed. How could they have any friendly relations with their attackers? It was in the name of Islam that these atrocities were conducted. Whether or not this is true of the nature of Islam, that is not the question here. But certainly for those men and women who suffered the Mopla fate, that is what Islam represented. And can we blame them? I guarantee you one thing. Even though the government of India never recorded this chapter in their history books, these stories were passed on from generation to generation, within families and communities, as the nation grew tolerant to violence. In the dark of night, in hushed tones, fathers told their sons to stay away from that bearded man and avoid any conversation about religion. Mothers held their daughters closer when they heard distant sounds of protests. To bring about an amicable solution, the truth must come out no matter how uncomfortable it may be. 
It has to be dealt with openly to end a chapter where wounds have been festered into malodorous pus. Look, blaming Muslims today for the crimes of their forefathers is simply not a solution. We cannot drag them out and start blaming them for everything. But rest assured, if this event and many events like this, if they go unnoticed, unrecognized, unacknowledged, today's Muslims will be blamed. They will be targeted. So this issue needs to come out. These wounds need to heal. I hope one day, just one day, this government of India will come out and honor the victims in some way or the other. I really hope that. Next episode, we delve into the non-cooperation movement, the rise of Subhash Bose into politics, some important events of the 30s before World War II begins. If you'd like to get in touch with me and leave your comments or feedback, uh, please get in touch with me on Twitter or Instagram. My handles for both are in the description box below. Until next time, Namaskar.